<laughs> Welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. If you're new here, welcome. Everything that we do on this show is dictated by our three guiding principles, peace, property rights, and free markets. I had a lot I wanted to cover on this show, and I felt like a lot of it was time sensitive, and I probably could have cut a little bit of it, but... Uh, With this show being released every other week, I wanted to make sure that I could get it in here while I still could and while it was still relevant so that as you see these things playing out in the news, you have a little bit more insight as to what's going on and um, why it's happening this way. And a couple of these are follow-ups from things that we've already covered on the show. And as you listen to the show, as we go from one episode to the next, you're going to see these things kind of fall back on each other because... We're not just worried about what the news is talking about today and whatever drama is happening right at this current moment. We're going to talk about what's going on behind these things and why they've built up the way they were and how it connects to other events that have been going on. I'm just pretty excited that we have a couple follow-ups to things that we've already talked to on this show. And uh, of course, we're going to have some things we've never talked about before as well. But there's a lot here, so I'm just going to jump right in. Starting off, I want to give you a quick update about what is going on with Trump's border wall. Uh, as you probably remember, Trump didn't get the votes or the budget he needed for his wall. So in March, um, I think it was March, he declared a national emergency to have the wall built. And Congress actually voted to deny the national emergency, but he vetoed their denial. And they didn't have enough votes to override the veto. So now, at this point, the national emergency process is slowly moving forward, but the Democrat-led House of Representatives took it to court to try to block it. Here's an article that ran in Reuters on June 3rd. U.S. judge denies Democrats' lawsuit to stop border wall funds. says, District Court Judge Trevor McFadden of the District of Columbia ruled that the House lacked legal standing to sue Trump for using money to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border that was appropriated by Congress for other purposes. Here's a quote from McFadden. While the Constitution bestows upon members of the House many powers, it does not grant them the standing to hail the executive branch into court claiming a dilution of the Congress's legislative authority. The court therefore lacks jurisdiction to hear the House's claims and will deny its motion, McFadden wrote. Basically, what this judge is correctly stating here is, look, the House of Representatives and the President are obviously not getting along here. He wants a wall. They don't. If Congress wants to block him from building the wall, then they need to vote to remove his funds for the wall. And if he vetoes it, then they need to override the veto. And this, this was the right decision. This was a good decision. Um, last episode, we talked about how the courts have taken way, way too much power. And sometimes they even make politically motivated decisions, um, just judging by you know whatever side of the fence the judge sits on, or they issue rulings that become law. And like we said, that goes against the way that this was supposed to work. It, it goes against the way it was supposed to be. But... Luckily here, Judge McFadden didn't fall into that trap. He did the right thing, and he said, listen, don't get me involved. This is your problem. You two can sort it out. You need to deal with it. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in maybe an episode 
uh, test episode 0.3, but the whole National Emergency Act from 1976 is actually unconstitutional in itself. Originally, the only authority the president had to declare any kind of emergency was if another country's military attacked us, right? If we're under some kind of invasion, then the president was allowed, I think it was a year, if I remember correctly, that he was allowed to to use some money to direct the military to fight back. But outside of that, if the president wanted money to do something, Congress had to approve it. Uh, As Chrisanne Hall put it so well, she said, The executive branch wields the sword, but the legislative branch wields the purse. Some of you married guys probably live in a similar situation. What this means, though, is if Congress really wanted to block Trump's wall, all they would have to do is to do away with the National Emergency Act of 1976. They could easily give a majority vote to repeal it. But it's also likely that just a few of them could take it to court and challenge it as unconstitutional because it authorizes federal powers that are not granted in the U.S. Constitution. Remember, the Tenth Amendment says that if the Constitution doesn't specifically say that the federal government is allowed to do this, then they're not supposed to do it. Everything else is supposed to be left to the states, but they're not going to do that. Congress likes giving their powers and responsibilities away to the president because it gives them a scapegoat for when things turn out poorly. Uh, They can tell their voters, oh, I was against this the whole time, but the president just did what he wanted. Same thing if, you know, something good happens, then they just say that they were behind it the whole time and that they're the ones who encouraged the president to do it. Now, if they were, again, to take this National Emergencies Act to court to be overturned, that also means that they would be admitting that all of the emergencies declared by Barack Obama and George Bush, and all the way back to the very first one where Jimmy Carter stole a pallet of cash from the Iranians, you absolutely need to listen to episode two on Yemen if you didn't catch that reference. They would be admitting that all of these emergencies were unconstitutional and that they shouldn't have ever been allowed. And we all know that's not going to happen. They don't want to hurt any other president's legacy of anything that he's ever done. And they like to keep that power in their back pocket so that if one of their guys gets in charge next time, whether it's a a Republican that the Republicans like better or if it's a, a Democrat, they want him to have this power and they want him to be able to do that. So they're just going to let it go. So the fight for the wall goes on. Personally, I've said it before. I don't really care how you feel about the wall. Build it. Don't build it. It doesn't matter. But I will end by reminding you three things about a border wall. Number one, walls are expensive and we're already $22 trillion in debt. Number two, as long as you're giving free benefits to the poor, people are going to sneak into this country to get those benefits, whether there's a wall or not. And number three, just remember, if a wall can keep people out, then if everything hits the fan in this country... That same wall can also keep you in. Next up, uh, we have a little bit of an update on Julian Assange. We talked about him in, I believe, episode number three. And this past week, a Swedish court ruled that the Swedish prosecutors could not request extradition at this time. So because he is expected to remain in British custody for at least the next six months, that means he is not a flight risk, so there's no need to extradite him at this time. 
So that could change later, but right now, he's stuck in prison. He's not going anywhere. Now, remember, Sweden requested that he return to their country so that he can be questioned about a rape accusation. What nobody is mentioning is that he and his lawyer offered to let them question him while he was in Britain, but it appeared that those charges were trumped up and they were looking for any excuse to put him away, so he didn't want to enter Sweden, and honestly, who could blame him? If you think that they're just trying to find an excuse to put you in jail, you're not going to go into that country. Now, the U.S. is also still trying to have him extradited over here, and he had a hearing scheduled last week regarding that extradition, but... They had to postpone that hearing because he was too sick to even appear on a video call with the court. His lawyer said he was too sick to even carry on a conversation, that he couldn't even do that much. Now, remember, he spent almost seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy with no sunlight, no access to medical care. He was mostly in solitary confinement, which, by the way, that's torture. And he was under 24-hour surveillance even when he was using the restroom. Since being moved to prison, he spent more time in solitary confinement. Again, that's torture. And then he's been in the hospital ward with severe weight loss and other unspecified issues. If you listen to episode number three, you also know about the methods that the U.S. and British agents were using to question him and to quote-unquote treat him in their interrogations already. Uh, You're welcome to go back to the last several minutes of that episode to get the details, But the short of it is that uh, I think that they could very well be trying to kill him or just to completely fry his brain before he ever stands trial. Again, this is an area where I wish my predictions were wrong. Um, This man is a journalist. He doesn't deserve this. But this is an example of how looking beneath the mainstream talking points can give us a lot of very accurate insights as to what's going on and what's likely to happen next. We could see that we were heading this direction if you listen to episode three. Again, I, I, I don't mean for this to sound in any way like I'm you know jumping up and down. I'm, I'm happy that I was right. I wish I would have been wrong here, but I do want this just to kind of serve as a, a lesson that it it is important for us to pay attention. It is important for us to watch these things because then a lot of the other stuff that happens seems to make sense. Anybody on the outside is probably just looking at this going, oh, well, you know, the guy got really sick. Maybe it's a stomach bug, something like that. But if you were here for episode three, you know it wasn't a stomach bug. That's not what the problem was. Um, the media is not giving Assange the respect or humanity he deserves and the coverage that he deserves. And honestly, this is because they want to be the gatekeepers of information. They want to be able to dictate their narrative to you. War is a very profitable business for everybody involved, and when Assange released information without their approval, they saw that as a betrayal that couldn't be tolerated. And now, at the exact moment when freedom of speech and freedom of the press are needed the most, the mainstream media is letting it rot in a Belmarsh prison cell. While we're on the topic of controlling information... I do want to mention that a few weeks ago, Facebook banned several right-wing personalities from their platform. Um, Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, Laura Loomer. They're all, honestly, they're pretty hardcore, like, right-wing people, um, mostly kind of provocateur type. And then just for good measure, uh, while they're kicking all these other people out, they threw Louis Farrakhan in so that no one could say that they were only banning conservatives. 
Now, I've spoken before on this podcast about free speech and how it's best just to let these people speak. And if you don't like what they say, then you should either just push back or ignore them. I I focus on that a lot on test episode 0.4. Plenty of outlets have talked about this a lot, and um, there's all kinds of discussion back and forth about whether or not this is infringing on free speech or, you know, Facebook and Twitter are private companies so they can control whatever they want. I'm not going to bore you with all of that. I want to try to give you something here that you're not getting anywhere else. So I want to point out two major things here to keep in mind as you have those discussions and as this whole issue keeps rolling out. The first thing is there is a difference between publishers and platforms. And this is, it's a kind of technicality that makes this issue really hard to nail down. Um, A publisher is a person or group, they curate and distribute content. The most obvious example of this, I think, would just be a book publisher. You send them your ideas for books, they look at it, they decide whether or not they want to take you on and distribute your stuff. Uh, Their necks and reputations are on the line, so they can be pretty picky about the content that they're willing to print. That's pretty easy for most of us to sympathize with. You don't want to put out a bunch of somebody else's crap with your name on it. Uh, If they take their time, their money, their resources to print and share your stuff, then that's basically an endorsement of your work. And at the same time, if they print something that is libelous or something that actually has the ability to hurt somebody, like maybe they post bad medical advice or something like that, then they can be held legally liable because they had to approve it all before it was ever released. So, that's pretty easy to understand. On the other hand, a platform is simply a venue where anybody can go and share their ideas, their art, their writing, you get it. If you're a platform, you're not really claiming to have any control over what people post in your space. You are just offering the space. None of it's being screened ahead of time. It goes directly up there without really any questions asked. So that classification also gives these companies the the freedom to really distance themselves from anything controversial that gets posted in their platform. In other words, uh, just because grandma says something racist at the dinner table, that doesn't mean the company who built the table is racist, right? Um, Platforms are much more protected by the law because, again, they don't really have any ownership of the content. You can't call the cops on Mark Zuckerberg because some random idiot makes a death threat on your Facebook wall. You you call the cops on the guy or ex-girlfriend who did it, and that person is the one who's legally held liable. The platform is completely left out of the equation. And I think we can all agree it's a relatively fair system. They just stay out of it, and then if you post something stupid or whatever, that's on you. And um, if there's anything illegal, they're going to come after you. Now, the confusion here is that these social networks really straddle the line between being a publisher and being a platform. They claim to be platforms. They call themselves platforms. They say that their users are allowed to post whatever they want, within reason, again. And because of that, they enjoy all the legal protections that come with being a platform. It's really hard for you to sue Facebook or Twitter over anything that somebody does on there. However, a lot of times they act a lot more like publishers. 
they set up algorithms to show you the content they want you to see and they'll hide the content they want you to ignore. Facebook has been really clear about their efforts to make themselves a, a friends and family kind of space where uh, if unless you're a major page with hundreds of thousands of followers, they won't show any of your links to anything that's outside of Facebook. So uh, if you share a news article from you know CNN, then your friends are going to see it. But if you find your own article from you know a site that's lesser known or you go even you go to a CNN page and you copy the link yourself instead of sharing it from their page almost none of your friends are going to see it it's going to get algorithmed completely out because Facebook doesn't want anybody clicking something that's going to leave their site on top of that Facebook tracks all of your browsing all the browsing you do on the web and a lot of the stuff that you do with apps on your phone, and they choose what ads they want you to see. And they, they even tailor their ads directly to you. And, you know, we all know this. And that can have some serious impacts, if you think about it. Michael Malice has pointed out several times that since you don't know if you're seeing the ads that everybody else is seeing, and they clearly know what your political stances are by the things that you like and the things that you follow they could possibly be able to swing a whole election by posting an ad and reminding one group of people just to go out and vote and not showing the ad to other people at all. If you know that you can reach that many people and you could affect voter turnout and only get the voters that you want out of there, that's a lot of power, and that's kind of scary. Also, I'll post a link in the show notes to a, a fantastic and a terrifying episode of The Tom Woods Show where this psychologist shows that Google can, and they are, influencing elections just by manipulating the order of your search results. And uh, I highly recommend that. It's just absolutely crazy. And these social media companies are also stepping into the publisher territory by outright banning people that they don't want on their sites. And, you know, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that these bans are coming to people almost exclusively on one particular end of the political spectrum. And uh, you're going to hear people, even people like me who are really big on private property, you'll hear those people make the argument, well, they're a private company, they can do whatever they want. First of all, a lot of these people are the same people who will lose their minds when a private company like Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby tries to make their own decisions about their employees, but we'll just leave that one alone for today. The problem here is that these companies are using the protection of one classification while they use the power and discretion of the other classification. I mean, honestly, if you want to start your own social network, especially tailored for activists in their mid-20s who still live in their mom's basement, then great, do it. But don't build it and claim it's for everybody and then start shutting down everybody who operates outside of your allowable opinions. That's the first thing I want you to keep in mind as this moves forward is platform and publisher is uh, it's really muddy at this point. Both of those things are very clear, but these companies are really taking the best of both worlds and not taking responsibility for either. The other thing when it comes to these social media bans is I want to talk about self-interest. As humans, self-interest is what keeps us alive. It's, it's an attribute that you have and it reminds you that you need to look out for yourself and a lot of times your family because nobody else will, right? Always look out for number one. Now, I think the left especially hates this idea, but if we're being honest with ourselves, 
when you say it out loud, it makes people on the right pretty squeamish too. I'm not talking about greed. I'm not talking about some unhealthy, unquenchable desire to acquire more and more and more and more. I'm talking about every person's natural inclination to make sure that they take care of themselves. You know, that's, that's the thing in you that says, I'm thirsty, I better get up and get something to drink, or I want to make sure my kids have a roof over their head, so I better go find a decent job. Without self-interest, maybe you'd never get a drink of water because what if someone else is thirsty? Shouldn't you let them have that water? Um, you know, maybe you would never get a job because what if somebody else wants that job? Honestly, without self-interest, you might literally sit at a four-way stop for all of eternity because you want to make sure everyone else gets their turn to drive through first. And in our society, I think our schooling and even our parenting style, they've put such a heavy focus on sharing and doing what's best for all of society and for everybody around you that sometimes we almost forget that I am the person that I am most responsible for. And more importantly, self-interest is a good thing. Self-interest is what makes the world go around. And every day, there are a million different ways that people can work together to satisfy their self-interests, often at the same time. You know, when you buy a widget, you're happy because you traded your cash for a new widget. And the widget salesman is happy because he traded the widget for cash. Everybody wins there. Your employer, they have money, but... They need somebody to do the work, and you can do work, but you need money. It's a situation that works for everybody there. Now, yes, I know it's not always that simple, and everybody isn't always just happy-go-lucky all the time that, you know, you get to pay your bills, and you get to go to work, and, you know, whatever, but I think it's just so important to see and remember the freedom that we have in almost everything that we do. If you really want to, you can get a different job. If you hate your job, there are other jobs out there that you can go do instead. If you don't like where you live, you can move to a new neighborhood. You can even break off a bad relationship if you need to. And that freedom is it's something that a lot of people miss these days. And I think when you hear these Bernie Sanders types talking about how we're all slaves to our employers and our landlords are evil for charging us rent... I think it's really important to remind them of this freedom, that we all have the freedom to make changes to look out for our own self-interest. That's something that really binds people up, I think, is, is by telling them that they have to live for everybody else and that they don't have any choices when you do have choices. And, and you can take care of yourself, and that makes you better off, and it also typically makes people around you better off as well. Okay, why am I talking about this? What does that have to do with social media? Well, companies are made up of people, and they, too, have self-interest. Their goal, a company's goal, is obviously to make enough money to pay their employees and to pay their bills. On top of that, they usually want to grow, and they want to be the number one provider of whatever it is that they're selling. Again, at the most basic level, that's nothing to be ashamed of. I understand sometimes companies and people do bad things, and I'm not trying to deny it, but for the sake of this conversation... I just want to point out that it can be completely healthy and completely moral for a company to look out for itself. Again, don't, don't come at me with every bad thing you've ever heard that a company did. We just need to admit, yes, companies can be moral and they can try to make money at the same time. Um, social media companies, quite obviously, do their business in media. They are platforms or publishers, depending on how you look at it where people can share their thoughts, pictures, videos, research, whatever whatever they want to post, 
and they can put it all out there for the rest of the world to see. And the more people that use the service, the more they sell ads and the more they make money. Essentially, you are the product when it comes to social media. And you agree to that. And again, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know I'm not a fan of a lot of their ideas and a lot of their methods, but right now we're just talking about the business aspect of it. But also, social media companies share a lot of space with more traditional media companies, mostly like the news media. Um, It should be completely obvious that your CNNs, your Fox News, your Washington Post, CBS, these are all businesses with their own self-interests as well. And a lot of the big news agencies, they really had the market cornered pretty well for a long time. So it's going to be completely understandable that they're not happy about somebody else coming into their space and taking away uh, some of the influence and the attention that they have over their customers. For a long time, the mainstream media had a really firm grasp on what news got reported and how it got reported as well. They could focus on the narratives that they wanted to create, and with those narratives, they could kind of keep everybody separated really neatly into two groups, if you want to be honest about it. And you could go to a few places where you get your Republican news and narratives, and you can stay in your Republican group that way. Or you could go to a handful of other places and get your Democrat narratives and news. And it made it really easy for you to kind of find a place where you fit in and they could easily push everybody off into those little boxes. And as far as business models go, that's a pretty good deal. Either way you go, you're pretty much guaranteed to bring in about 50% of the country. Good for them. But with the rise of Facebook and Twitter, especially you know over the past I don't know, five years or so, that was a huge threat to the cable news and market share. And as a business, you've got to find ways to beat the competition. And again, sometimes people fight dirty. Since the mainstream media is having their business threatened, and because their candidate of choice, Madam President, lost the 2016 election, they've placed the blame on fake news, and they're going after Twitter and Facebook for allowing it to spread. I'm probably eventually going to do a whole episode just on fake news because I have kind of my own theories and my own ideas of where this originated and and how it came about. And I've never heard anybody share it quite the same way. So I think I could give you something completely new that you're not getting anywhere else. But we will save that for another episode. So you've seen more and more over the past couple years, they really start building a case against social media. And a lot of these news agencies, they're posting articles about how social media is bad for your health and the harmful effects of online bullying and how people are believing lies on the internet and on and on. Now look, I'm not endorsing false stories or bullying or your favorite flat earth forum, but my point is, There is a reason why the mainstream media wants you to know how bad Facebook and Twitter are, and it's because they want your money and attention back. They're going to do everything they can to demonize and delegitimize social media in the self-interest of protecting their business. You can see right before your eyes the narrative being built against these social media companies. At the same time, the social media giants know this and they also want to protect their business. So this is where the bans come in. They're trying to stay one step ahead of these accusations and this is why you see them banning so many of these controversial figures. 
They want to look like they're doing their part to fight hatred and violence and conspiracy theories and all the other things that keep Rachel Maddow awake at night. And before you say it, yes, I know. These guys in Silicon Valley, they often share a lot of the same beliefs as the liberal mainstream media, and they also hate a lot of the same people. But they are still ultimately two different groups competing for a market share in the same market, and that's what's driving all of this. So... These bands are going to continue, and they're going to move from the most fringe provocateurs like Alex Jones and Milo, and they'll keep gradually moving inward, and they'll test the waters and see just how much they can get away with without too much pushback. They got Steven Crowder this week. He's kind of one step away from the fringe of those other people, and hey, with any luck, maybe they'll be going after this podcast soon. No matter what happens, you can rest assured that if Donald Trump gets reelected in 2020, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey are going to be saying, well, can't blame that on us. We banned all the right people. No pun intended, I guess. Um, finally, I am running low on time, but I do want to make sure that I cover our title segment, How Trump's Tariffs Will Break Your Windows. There's been a lot of talk in the news about tariffs, and Trump is a really big fan of tariffs. Uh, his campaign centered around China and how we have this massive trade deficit with them and how he wants to put America first and make sure China isn't taking advantage of us by selling so much cheap stuff and uh, they don't buy nearly as much from us. Uh, while I was preparing for this, um, he was also talking about hitting Mexico with tariffs if they didn't stop letting people sneak across the border. Uh, but I just literally just got a notification on my phone that says he is dropping the Mexico tariffs for now. So, first off, what is a trade deficit and why is it a problem? Well, a trade deficit, that's when one side is buying more stuff than the other side. So, China, for example, is it's they're still a pretty industrial nation and they have all kinds of factories all over the place. And they pay lower wages. So, because of that, they're really good at making a lot of stuff at very low prices. Now, consumers usually like lower prices, so... As a result, now half the crap in your house says made in China on the bottom of it. What is Trump's problem if you're buying cheap stuff from China? Well, when you spend money in another country, sure, you're filling your house with cool stuff, but you're sending our American dollars over to the godforsaken communists on the other side of the world. Those dollars are leaving our economy, and now... Um, they're going to some Chinese factory worker and he's going to a Chinese store to buy Chinese food for his Chinese family and his Chinese house. And that house is full of our good Christian American dollars. And since we Americans simply don't make as much here and everything costs more because we make higher wages here, the Chinese aren't sending their money back over here to buy stuff from us. So now we have a trade deficit with China. On top of that, because they can make things so cheap, American companies don't stand a chance to compete with them. If you need a phone charger, you're probably not going to buy an American charger for 25 bucks when you can get on Amazon and get a Chinese one for 5 bucks, right? And you know why would Nike pay an American 8 or 10 bucks an hour plus benefits uh, when they can pay some kid in a sweatshop like $2 a day? So we have a trade deficit with China and some other countries too. And to make things worse, American businesses can't compete with their low prices. How do we fix this? Yes, Donald, we fix it with tariffs. 
A tariff is basically, it's just an extra tax on a product that's coming or going from a particular country. Um, they can be on specific products, you know, like steel tariffs, or they might just be on every item that comes from whatever country. The idea is that you're kind of punishing the other country for being too efficient, but you're also, you're evening the score by allowing your local products to stay more competitive. So let's say um, for the sake of argument and for the sake of easy math, let's say China is selling t-shirts for $10 each. The best we can do here in the U.S. is $14 each. They're killing us in the t-shirt market. So what we can do here is we'll hit China with a 50% t-shirt tariff. And now their t-shirts jump from $10 to $15 compared to our good American $14 shirts. Now, in theory, most people here in America will start buying the cheaper $14 American shirts. And now we're not sending our money off to be spent overseas somewhere. Sure, you know, it costs more. In this case, it'd be 40% more, but it has a better effect on our local economy and it keeps our American t-shirt businesses healthy and prevents them from laying off their workers. So um, in this hypothetical case, by raising the t price of a t-shirt by four bucks, the tariffs have worked to reduce the trade deficit and they've helped protect jobs in our home country. But where did that extra $4 come from? Back in 1850, uh, Frederick Bastiat wrote a parable about a shopkeeper whose child was a little too careless and he broke a pane of glass in one of the front windows of his shop. Um, you know, the glass breaks, it makes a loud crash, and soon a small crowd gathers around to look at the damage. You know, everybody's just kind of looking at this mess. And after a few minutes, you know, the dust settles a little bit, and somebody finally says, well, bad luck happens, but if it weren't for these accidents, what would happen to the glaziers whose job it is to fix broken windows? And the crowd kind of agrees, and, you know, well, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And so everyone decides that this whole thing really did turn out for the best because this broken window is going to stimulate the local economy. And with that, the crowd isn't quite as upset about the broken window. But, Bastiat asserts, let's say it costs six francs to have the window repaired. So Glazier comes in and he puts in a new pane of glass and the shopkeeper pays him his six francs and you know, maybe he jokingly pats the kid on the head for breaking the glass and giving him some business. And uh, the, this downtown crowd is still nearby and all of this happens out in the open for plain to, and it's plain to see. Everybody agrees that this was good for the Glazier. He takes his six francs and he stays in business for another day. But if that's the case, then, I mean, shouldn't we break windows every day? Why would we stop at just breaking windows? Bastiat says, you know, maybe it would be best to burn the whole city of Paris to the ground. Think of all the money that could be spent to rebuild it all. When we put it that way, it seems really silly, obviously. Um, the crowd was so focused on what was seen, the glazier collecting his six francs, that they completely missed out on the unseen. You see, if the shopkeeper spent six francs on one thing, then he can't spend it on another thing. Maybe he needed new shoes, or maybe he was about to buy a new book for his library. Don't we care about the cobbler or the author? In other words, when you direct money to a place where it can be seen, you are directing that money away from somewhere unseen. So, going back to our t-shirt analogy, sure, now we're buying American t-shirts, 
But who is missing out on the extra $4 we saved when we bought the cheaper t-shirts? Add that $4 up over the course of a million t-shirts and you think of all the money you're pulling out of the economy just to save the American t-shirt industry. The same thing goes for those steel tariffs. Um, Sure, they might add more money to people in the steel industry, but is it worth the added cost to every single car and every single building in our country? On top of that, um, let's just imagine for a minute that you're Chinese and you own a Chinese t-shirt company and your business is just humming along because you make the best, cheapest t-shirts in the world. And business is so good that you just hire a thousand new workers and you build a second factory. And suddenly, the president from your biggest customer base declares a tariff and all that business comes screeching to a halt. You are not going to be happy about that, right? You're, you're mad. You've got to lay off workers. They're not happy. Your shareholders are losing money. They're not happy. Your government is losing tax revenue from the taxes you were paying them. They're not happy. So maybe the Chinese retaliate and they put tariffs on soy. And now... Not only are American soy farmers upset, but the price of soy has gone up for Chinese citizens. Now that they're spending that money on increased food prices, who knows who's losing out on that extra business? And of course, all of this increases tensions even more, and suddenly you've got militaries in each country who are usually sharing a lot of the same oceans and a lot of the same ports and regions. Well, now things are tense between those militaries. So, a tariff has the ability to hurt the economies of both sides, and it can cause outright wars. You know, the military, things start getting tense with the military, one wrong move, and you're at war. All because some bureaucrat thinks that somebody else's price is too low. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Where goods cross borders, armies do not. You're much more likely to be civil with somebody who you have some kind of relationship with. You know this in your personal life as well. You're a lot more likely to fight some random guy at the bar than you are your boss or your next door neighbor. You know you're going to have to see more of these people, so you might as well make it work, right? On top of that, trade deficits do not matter. Just to be honest with you, I have a trade deficit with Amazon.com. I buy from them a lot more than they buy from me. 100% more, to be exact. This doesn't mean that Amazon is ripping me off. In fact, it, it means the opposite. And if you live in a small town or on a state border, you probably have a trade deficit with another nearby town or even another state. But as long as you're happy giving them money and they're happy with giving you stuff, who cares? It doesn't matter. Even if you're spending all your money in China... We live in a world economy. It's the 21st century. They do buy things from us. A lot of them, they invest in our businesses. They send people to college here. Uh, American entertainment is huge. You know, the entire developed world gives Hollywood a ton of their money because they love the new Avengers movie just as much as you did. So the idea that this money is getting lost or it's not coming back or that anybody's getting ripped off, it's way, way, way overblown. Now, Trump's obviously not the first person to use tariffs as a bargaining chip, but I personally, I think that his interest in tariffs stems from his business background. I'll even be honest here and admit that in 2015, when he said he was going to run for president in the very, very beginning, 
I thought, wow, a businessman to run our government like a successful business. That could be really cool. That makes a lot of sense. But in business, you often want to destroy your competition. You might even see somebody like Donald Trump threaten to sabotage the whole deal if they don't get their way. I'll I'll wreck the whole thing if I have to. The stakes are high and the negotiations can turn into a game of chicken where they face off to see who flinches first. And again, this is just my thought, but I think that this is why Trump is threatening trade wars with China and Mexico and even Canada. The problem is government isn't a business. The success of a business depends on its ability to pay its bills and to make a profit. Their bank accounts tell them whether the business is succeeding or not. If they screw up, customers stop paying and they take a financial hit. If they don't succeed, the worst case is they declare bankruptcy, they lay a bunch of people off, and the execs usually move on to the next project. Government, on the other hand, it doesn't deal with profit. There's really no such thing as profit in government. They can spend just about as much as they want. If they run over budget, They just add more money to the budget. If a project fails, they don't lose money. They just try again. And if another company makes you mad as a consumer, you can just stop spending your money there and they will deal with that hit pretty much immediately. But when it comes to government, there's a long time between elections and the voters probably are going to forget about those failures by the time the next election rolls around anyway. And by that time, they already recognize the name of the guy who's been there before, so they just vote for them again because there's name recognition. That's why Congress, you know, has like a 20 or 30% approval rating and everybody hates their guts, but then most of the time, they all get reelected again. Also, if government gets into a feud with a rival government, there are militaries on each side that, that could possibly fight to the death. When they mess up, or when they have quarrels, people can actually die. It can get very violent. And a lot of times innocent people who aren't even involved in the quarrel. In other words, government is not a business. And you can't run a government like it is one. When you try to pull strings and redirect money and choose winners that you can see, you're going to damage things even more in the unseen. That is why, on this show, we believe in free markets. And that is why Donald Trump's tariffs are like a broken window that you are forced to repair. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. Uh, If you want to reach out to me, I am on twitter.com slash Garrett again, facebook.com slash Garrett again. You can email me at Garrett again at pm.me. As always, Garrett just has one R in it, and I will be back in a couple of weeks, and I got a couple more things I'm already looking forward to talking about with you. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this show with your friends. You want to give me a good rating on iTunes, I'd appreciate that too. If there's something you want me to cover, feel free to reach out and ask questions or push back on anything that I've talked about, and I would love to address those in the next podcast. But until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, Stay free. Get out of here.